Welcome to South Asia Chat, brought to you by the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. I'm your host, Ramita Ayer, and I'm a research analyst at the Institute. On 2nd September, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi commissioned the country's first indigenously built aircraft carrier, INS Vikrant. The 45,000-ton warship is the largest one to be built by India and has now successfully completed one year of sea trials. With the 3 billion US dollars or 4.2 billion Singapore dollars worth Vikrant, India is now said to have joined an elite league of the world's naval powers. In this episode, I am joined by Dr. Yogesh Joshi, research fellow at ISAS. We will be discussing details pertaining to INS Vikrant, India's defense capabilities and its naval strategy. Yogesh, welcome once again to South Asia Chat. Thanks, Ramita. Glad to be here. To start off, can you tell our listeners about the history, significance and capabilities of INS Vikrant? And in terms of looking at the timeline, how long is it going to take for the aircraft carrier to be fully operational? Okay, uh, so Vikrant has had a long history, uh, irrespective of India's first indigenous aircraft, IAC-1 as they call it, being uh, re-Christianed in some sense, Vikrant. Uh, So the first aircraft carrier India got was from the British, a Hercules-class fleet carrier, uh, which was purchased in 1957 and joined the Indian Navy in 1961. And it was Christianed as INS Vikrant. Uh, so in some sense, it saw action during the 1971 war, and it was pivotal uh, in India's response during uh, the Bangladesh crisis and uh, the war uh, which was fought and won in December 1971. So automatically, when India's first indigenous aircraft carrier was commissioned, it was named as Vikrant. So that was, uh, in some sense, the history of the older Vikrant. Uh, Coming to the new Vikrant, in a sense that in 1990s, India felt the need to develop an indigenous aircraft carrier. It was initially uh, supposed to be a smaller version of an aircraft carrier. Many called it an air defense ship, which was primarily that the the difference being that uh, it would host mostly uh, helicopters, uh, as well as, uh, you know, a very short vertically uh, restall aircrafts, which is vertical and short takeoff aircrafts, which don't have a lot of capability. And it would be a ship of around 20,000, 25,000 tons. Uh, But over a period of time that in any case, in all Indian, uh, you know, defense programs, delay is inevitable. So by the 2000s, the Navy thought that we would actually need uh, a bigger ship, uh, a more capable ship. Uh, and therefore, the air defense ship was later converted into an aircraft carrier. Uh, so uh, the design and the construction was approved in 2003. The keel was laid for this particular ship in 2009. And it was launched, which was from launching basically means that uh, you shift the structure from a dry port to uh, the water in 2009. And that took place in 2013, the launching of the aircraft carrier. And trials, as you suggested in your introduction, began in August 2021. And by September 2022, those uh, sea trials were done. And then is when the commissioning really happened. Uh, now, it almost took in, you know, the costs around 20,000 crores, uh, which can be anywhere between 2 billion to 2.5 billion US dollars, depending upon the conversion of currency rates. Uh, so that's more or less the history of Vikrant, both the present 
uh, reincarnation of Vikrant in a sense, but also the India's first aircraft carrier, which was uh, which was bought in 1950s and operated until uh, 1997 when it was decommissioned. Uh, so the significance as again starting from where you left in the introduction it is the biggest warship indian shipyards have ever built uh, you know at 43000 to 45000 tons depending upon the load of the ship at any point in time uh, almost 75 to 80% of the ship is indigenously built and designed so uh, it is a major fate for india's uh, indian navy's uh, naval warship design bureau uh, which basically designed uh, the ship uh, and also for indian shipyards uh, the cochin shipyard uh, which ultimately built the ship uh, it is also the seventh biggest aircraft carrier operated among all navies uh, in terms of their tonnage uh, india would be uh, the fifth country in the world to have now built an aircraft carrier and that's a capability uh, of significance itself um, and after the first time since the 1990s uh, india will be operating two simultaneous carriers uh, it was only in 1990s that india was operating uh, two carriers the earlier ins vikrant and an ins virat uh, which is now also decommissioned in a sense so now uh, with whenever ins vikrant uh, is uh, will be ready to be inducted fully into the indian navy you you would have uh, ins vikramadith uh, which is uh, a gorshkov class aircraft carrier purchased from the russians uh, in 2000s and joined the indian navy in uh, i think early 2010s and now with this aircraft carrier you would at least have you know two aircraft carriers simultaneously operating on the eastern and the western coasts of india in terms of capabilities as you would see that this is in some sense a smaller version of aircraft carriers uh, so the us aircraft carriers for the for that matter are over 100000 tons built uh, you know operated by uh, nuclear power uh, nuclear propulsion uh, then comes the second class of ships which is Uh, which are the british and the chinese uh, aircraft carriers which are around 65000 tons um and then is the last version uh, of 45 40 to 45000 tons so in some sense compared to aircraft carriers all over the world it is still relatively uh, of modest size uh, but it would have an endurance of almost 75000 nautical miles uh, which basically means that a ship can sail to brazil uh, without uh, the need of being refueled from the indian coasts uh, it would carry approximately 30 aircrafts uh, fixed wing aircraft such as the naval version of mig 29 which operates from india's other aircraft carrier right now ins vikramadit uh, but also at some point in time uh, the naval version of the light combat aircraft uh, which is indigenously developed um, by hindustan aeronautics limited uh, and is currently being sold to malaysia uh, or is the proposal to be uh, for being sold to malaysia at some point in time so the fixed wing aircrafts like mig 29 and lcas uh, as well as anti submarine helicopters such as kamov 31 from russia and mh60r from the us recently acquired another thing which we need to kind of uh, you know uh, laid out that in terms of capabilities the ship is going to operate on a technology called stobar rather than a catapult 
used for uh, assisting aircrafts. So a catapult can actually help heavier aircrafts and therefore is a better technology in that sense for operating heavy aircrafts. Uh, but uh, a stow bar can only help, uh, you know, medium medium mass aircrafts to be launched. So in that sense, there is uh, the Chinese uh, Laoying class aircraft carriers actually use catapults rather than stow bar. But so far as uh, we are thinking about aircraft, uh, aircraft such as MiG-29 and LCS, the stow bar uh, would be sufficient. Uh, if India builds uh, a, a bigger aircraft carrier at some point in time in future, uh, I think they would go for the cap catapult technology and there are active discussions with with the US to uh, to acquire that kind of capabilities uh, for the next set of aircraft carriers. Uh, so the country's second aircraft carrier Vikrant was commissioned just recently and the Indian Navy is already pitching for a third one now. So my question is, why does India need so many aircraft carriers and how does INS Vikrant fit into India's naval strategy? So uh, the Navy has always been very keen on aircraft carriers. So to give you an example, in 1947, when the Indian Navy uh, planned its first naval planned paper, it actually asked for two fleet carriers. Uh, you know, so in that sense, one can say that there is always an organizational uh, kind of a response to acquiring capabilities. The more you ask, the less you will get. The logic which the Navy provides is that you need to have at least two aircraft carriers operating on India's the eastern and the western coasts and at least at any point in time one aircraft carrier would be under maintenance uh, so you need three aircraft carriers to have seamless operations uh, both on the eastern front uh, and the western front uh, so that's the logic which the navy provides in some sense uh, for the aircraft carriers to be for three aircraft carriers uh, and they think that, you know, uh, that aircraft carrier provides versatile uh, capabilities, uh, particularly in terms of controlling the seas in and around, uh, you know, the Indian Ocean. Uh, and, and in some sense, fleet carriers work in tandem, uh, you know, uh, with, uh, with all kinds of ships, whether destroyers, missile corvettes, uh, you know, submarines. Uh, and they in themselves, uh, you know, uh, load a very lethal punch, uh, you know, uh, for in for projecting India's uh, uh, naval force and may come handy in terms of, you know, not only in coercive diplomacy, uh, but also in actual war. Uh, so, you know, as I said, in terms of India's naval strategy, I think India's naval strategy in some sense is predicated on the control uh, of the Indian Ocean. Uh, particularly vis-a-vis -vis, uh, not only the littoral straits, but also providing capabilities where they can thwart any interference by any external or extra-regional powers. Uh, so to create both uh, capabilities of deterrence as well as coercion. And in some sense, you know, uh, uh, aircraft carriers have been used for blockades of Pakistan, you know, in 1971 wars, for that matter. Uh, you know, there are also versatile ships in terms of showing the flag, you know, the prestige uh, which 
comes with an aircraft carrier as well as humanitarian missions. But the most important challenge for India right now is China, uh, which is already building its third aircraft carrier, bigger aircraft carriers, uh, you know, uh, much more sophisticated in some sense or the other. Uh, and the Chinese inroads into the Indian Ocean, which you saw with the, the recent Chinese spy ship docking in Sri Lanka. Uh, so I think there is more and more emphasis on how particularly with respect to China, and this is the first time India is actually facing a significant hostile naval power in the Indian Ocean. It has never done so in its history. Uh, you know, whether it was the British who controlled the Indian Ocean or the Americans, uh, for that matter, uh, for much of the modern era, uh, these, they were not actually hostile powers who had significant clash of interests, including a territorial clash with India. Um, but uh, for the first time in its in its maritime history, uh, India is facing a hostile naval power, which is expanding uh, like anything. China is now in a, in some sense even surpassed the U.S. in terms of the number of ships and submarines it operates. It's the largest navy in the world, though technologically, in some sense, uh, you know, it's still far behind the Americans. But uh, the capabilities they are. Uh, bringing uh, not only uh, to South China Sea, to uh, you know, to the Pacific, but also to the Indian Ocean. In some sense, uh, India's uh, you know uh, primacy in the Indian Ocean uh, is is under significant challenge. And I think uh, the whole idea, in some sense, uh, you know, for the Navy to build upon uh, these these capabilities is to take care of the China challenge. There's also a organizational and a, and a human resource element to it. So the Navy has always been talking about traditions of uh, operating these very uh, complex, uh, you know, uh, machines in a sense. And that comes, that, that allows them to build an operational, uh, you know, uh, an operational ethics and human resources. Uh, now, the Navy always wanted an aircraft carrier uh, and has always operated an aircraft carrier since 1961, even when India has faced uh, major financial uh, issues on the idea that if we don't operate it, we will lose uh, the capability and the knowledge to operate such uh, you know, complex machines. And therefore, there is always also an operational and a human resource element uh, to, uh, you know, uh, the Navy's emphasis on retaining that capability and the knowledge uh, to operate aircraft carriers. So within the Indian strategic establishment, there are also voices who consider aircraft carriers to be a liability rather than an asset. Some contend that the Navy should focus more on submarines rather than aircraft carriers. Could you throw some light on this debate? So I think it's not a new debate. Uh, you know, the problem is that we haven't looked into uh, the history of, uh, you know, very, very, very nuanced uh, issues like, you know, what should your force structure be like, whether you would like more capital ships, surface ships, or you would like to have more underwater capabilities or smaller uh, smaller ships which pack a more lethal punch so the in some conceptual in the conceptual you know world of naval strategy uh, this is about 
uh, what your objectives are at the end of the day. And it also depends upon uh, what your finances are. You know, so those are the two most important things before you can actually think about a force structure. Uh, now, uh, that's how you divide in a sense of strategies of what you call sea control and sea denial. Now, uh, very large navies who have expeditionary objectives, uh, you know, which operate far away from homeland actually have, uh, you know, have to do uh, a lot more uh, than navies operating closer to the shores. Uh, and therefore, you need to control large swaths of the ocean, uh, you know, both tactical control as well as strategic control. And therefore, you need uh, a fleet of aircraft carriers like the British or for that matter, uh, you know, the, the Americans who operate, you know, at any point in time, 10 to 15 aircraft carriers at tandem. So the question has always been, uh, what are we deterring? Uh, you know, what are our objectives? What are the threats? And do we have the money, uh, you know, to build such a huge navy? Or should we be more smart, uh, you know, and smart in uh, under quotations in some sense, uh, given our financial resources and develop capabilities uh, which can deter uh, you know, hostile powers, but not necessarily provide us uh, the capability to control the seas and also operate far flung from our shores. Uh, so, and that debate actually, uh, which hasn't been really come out, but that debate has been there from the time India was thinking about buying its first aircraft carrier. So, in fact, Nehru was never convinced of the usefulness of an aircraft carrier. He was, in fact, not very convinced of usefulness of a navy, uh, you know, but leave aside the idea of an aircraft carrier. But there was a very, very intense debate uh, between uh, Jawaharlal Nehru, uh, India's Defense Minister K.N. Kaju, India's Defense Secretary M.A. Ve Velaudi uh, on one side, uh, and then uh, people like K.M. Panika, who was a brilliant maritime strategist, and Lord Mountbatten uh, on the other side. Uh, and the Indian defense establishment, particularly the bureaucratic establishment, not the Navy, the Navy always wanted that. Uh, by, um, we're basically talking about that these doesn't really suit our needs, they, they don't really suit our finances, uh, and we don't understand the real objective uh, or the threat uh, which uh, aircraft carriers can help us achieve or deter. On the other hand, Panikar and Mountbatten uh, were very keen on having aircraft carriers and particularly, uh, you know, their, uh, the most important emphasis was not exactly, exactly on, um, you know, the kind of objectives or threats because there were none. Uh, you know, the Indian Ocean was dominated by the British who were more or less were not a threat to India. And so, and so, so there was no threat from the seas. But, they were, but their main argument was that uh, it's the prestige and the glamour associated with the, with the aircraft carriers uh, and India as a power as, or as a naval power, if it wants to be, uh, needs to have aircraft carriers. Even after 1971, uh, which uh, many in the Indian Navy kind of give, give as evidence of aircraft carriers' usefulness in situations of war, uh, was actually contested by political decision makers within the Planning Commission. So Planning Commission chairperson like D.P. Dar basically said that, no, we should not ask for capital ships. Uh, and in fact, you know, the replacement of aircraft on the 
INS Vikrant was delayed for a significant period of time. Uh, so that debate has always been there and much of it, uh, you know, is, is predicated on India's financial muscle. Even today, for that matter, now today the question is a little bit more complex. It's more complex because it is not as if India doesn't have the financial muscle. Uh, but it is much more about the kind of threat uh, which comes, uh, the kind of threat and how is the best way to kind of, uh, you know, uh, ensure that that threat doesn't materialize. And that threat is particularly China. Uh, so, so the question is, it's not about guns and butter anymore in terms of whether should have, we should have aircraft carrier carriers put in so much of money or we should put it into development. Uh, but the but the question now has become much more about strategic efficiency, uh, which is basically that how can you counter uh, the Chinese uh, from coming into the Indian Ocean uh, and threatening your vital security interests? Uh, would aircraft carriers, which I don't foresee uh, the Indians, uh, you know, sailing down a fleet. Uh, a task force led by INS Vikrant or INS Vikramiditya into the South China Sea. Uh, uh, but if the Chinese presence increases, how can you deter it the most? And many in the Indian Navy, as well as political and strategic commentators, kind of think that it would be much more uh, you know, efficient in terms of both finances as well as in terms of strategy to develop uh, more submarine capability, more reconnaissance and surveillance capability, more standoff, more capabilities to hit Chinese targets in the sea using standoff weapons such as cruise missiles, uh, you know, and anti-ship missiles uh, from the Indian coasts. And particularly with availability of uh, Lakshadweep Islands on the west and the Andaman Seas, on the on the east uh, and the amount of money you're going to spend on an aircraft carrier you can get maybe much more worth of these capabilities uh, sea denial capabilities for the same so that's exactly how the debate uh, basically shapes up so there is continuity from the historical debate but there's also some kind of nuance uh, particularly today uh, and and at the end of the day, money matters, you know. So whenever we think about four structures, it is uh, absolutely about the money. Um, and uh, given, you know, if India would have been uh, developing at the same rate as it was develop developing in late 2000s, things would have been different. Uh, but there is significant decline in, you know, India's GDP growth uh, over the years. Uh, and uh, that constraints in some sense, uh, you know, its investment into, uh, you know, its capital investment in its, uh, in its armed forces. And that's why we also see schemes such as Agnivir, uh, which we had talked about in, uh, in the previous episode. The making of INS Vikrant is being hailed as a milestone for India's defense manufacturing capabilities. In fact, this was one of the things that Prime Minister Modi also uh, highlighted in his address at the Cochin shipyard. So how do you see the commissioning of the ship validated within the presets of the government's flagship initiative of Atmanirbhar Bharat? So one needs to kind of, before I do that, I just need to kind of underline that there are many capabilities which India would still need to import. So it's 76% indigenization, which, uh, uh, and many subsystems and systems would be imported. So primarily the, the main radar would be imported from Israel. 
you know, the anti-ship uh, missiles and anti-aircraft missiles, the Barak system would be imported from Israel. Uh, you know, so there are many components. The aircrafts would be Russians in some sense or the other. Uh, you know, so uh, there are many components which would still be imported. Uh, you know, but what has happened is achieving a 76% indigenization is not a mean fit. Uh, you know, it's not a small fate in some sense. Um, uh, first of all, I think what needs to underline is the sophistication needed to design uh, con- uh, concepts, sketches, uh, you know, the overall uh, idea of an aircraft carrier uh, by, you know, the Naval Warship Design Bureau is a huge achievement uh, because India, Indian Navy and the Naval Warship Design Bureau has never done that before. Uh, and the construction of the ship, again, by Cochin Shipyard. The Cochin Shipyard has built tankers and other civilian ships, you know, um, uh, over 100,000 tons. Uh, but for the first time, they have built a warship, uh, which is almost 45,000 tons, the biggest ever built in India. Uh, so in that sense, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a stra- it's, a, it's a major achievement. It's also a major achievement because... It involved al- almost 5,500 uh, medium, small and uh, micro, small and medium enterprises uh, from India, which we called MSMEs, contributing uh, to, uh, to, to the construction of the ship. And then the ship's systems design and systems integration and all of that, uh, which comes from it. Uh, so to give you an example, the steel for the ship, the uh, the special military-grade steel for the ship was initially uh, supposed to come from Russia. Uh, but in 2005-2007, Russia declined to, uh, you know, provide that kind of steel and therefore it was developed indigenously by Steel Authority of India. You know, Larson and Tubro, another major uh, Indian, um, you know, company, manufacturing company, which also actually develops India's nuclear submarines, provided switchboards, steering gear, watertight hatches. Kirloskar, a major firm, in provided air conditioning and refrigeration. The pumps came from Best in Crompton. So there is, you know, a lot of the local uh, ecosystem of manufacturing which has come together. Uh, to kind of, uh, you know, to kind of put this all together. And it is important to understand that because the military forces, the services in the Indian defense establishment has always been very, very keen on, um, you know, getting things from outside. Uh, Except in some sense the Navy because the Navy... Uh, uh, was has developed that history and tradition of working with local shipyards, of working with local industries, of working with the defense research and development ecosystem in India over a period of time. Uh, and it has in some sense, you know, be a, has been the cheerleader of self-reliance among India's different services when you uh, when you consider, compare it with Army and the Air Force. So it's also a major, you know, uh, one needs to give that kind of, uh, you know, attribution to the Navy and its thinking when it comes to self-reliance. Uh, but also, you know, when you look at Atman Bharat, it is very important to not only develop the ecosystem, but produ- but to give clear negative and positive inducements uh, so uh, and that 
you could you can actually see that in the atmanirbhar bharat scheme where you know the defense ministry comes out clearly uh, with negative and positive lists uh, of uh, items uh, which cannot be imported and uh, which can only be developed um, you know indigenously and that has uh, clearly given you know uh, very objective markers uh both to the indian defense industry but also to the services that over a period of time you will have to achieve that much of indigenization uh, so i think and that then the services in some sense uh with some kind of flexibility if you can't develop those systems within the time frame and they are absolutely es- es- essential you will import them but there's a clear inducement both and sanctioning uh you know both negative and positive inducement to the defense industry as well as the services to indigenize as much as possible and one can and and at some point in time maybe you know one can one can see that it might dilute uh you know uh, efficiency and reliability to a certain extent but that comes with the territory until and unless uh you know you do that compromise you won't be able to develop uh you know things indigenously and you can see some of the results of that uh with uh, india's defense exports actually increasing substantially in the last 5 to 10 years um you know the sale of brahmos to philippines uh you know uh, the light combat aircraft being considered by the malaysian air force and the argentinian air force and many more are interested uh in kind of uh you know uh, what indian uh, what india can provide and particularly in terms of shipping the costs of vikram the substantially low uh, when you compared of compare it to constructing the same class of ship in any foreign shipyard you know so in some sense you're developing those comparative advantages uh, which could be used later uh, not only for not only for your own consumption um, but also for exports and one thing is which is absolutely essential to take note of is that any reduction of imports uh, is adding to india's uh, you know uh, uh, india's financial muscle in any case uh you know so even india is such a huge con- consumer of defense products that you don't really need to export them even if you can just satisfy your internal demands uh you will actually uh take away a lot of weight uh from the exchequer so in our conversation today you've uh mentioned the china threat a couple of times so so turning our focus now to india's neighborhood how will this capability impact india's balance of naval forces with china but also with pakistan uh so let's think about pakistan first i think in the the case with pakistan is a little straightforward uh in a sense that india has always kind of enjoyed uh disproportional uh advantages in terms of naval forces over pakistan um you know and pakistan's strategy because india's strategy has been of sea control uh, pakistan's strategy has been of sea denial so you know pakistan has actually from from the very beginning invested a lot more uh, into the kind of weapon systems for sea denial as i was talking about you know anti ship missiles submarines small aircraft you know uh, shore based aircrafts for that matter and all of that Uh, but clearly operating two aircraft carriers in the indian ocean at any point in time uh, you know uh, provides india the capability to blockade pakistan and to use that threat uh, for its coercive diplomacy um, in fact 
some of these were considered during the Kargil War. The Kargil War, Indian Navy uh, actively worked towards or pre- was preparing to blockade Pakistan as uh, a measure of escalation if things don't really go India's way on uh, in the limited war in Kargil. Uh, but also, you know, during the Balakot crisis, uh, there's always these contingency plans to, to blockade Pakistan. Uh, so in that sense, having those two aircraft carriers was vital. But it's also vital because once you have uh, aircraft carriers operating both on the eastern front and the western front, at least you have capability to take care of any extra regional threats uh, if they materialize during, uh, you know, um, during any confrontation with Pakistan. So if it, if in case uh, China comes to help Pakistan for that matter or show uh, its presence in the Indian Ocean, you have capabilities to take care of that while you are doing your, your job on the Pakistani front. Uh, but I think the larger consequence for the aircraft carriers is uh, the control uh, over sea lanes of communications. Uh, you know, so uh, if if there are two aircraft carriers, they can operate far away from, uh, you know, the India shows and the aircrafts give them and and the kind of capabilities aircraft aircraft carrier has with the task force it commands uh, would have a capability uh, which would basically cover the whole of northern Indian Ocean uh, from Straits of Malacca to Straits of Hormuz, so to say. And India's strategy vis-a-vis China uh, is one that you don't allow the Chinese to come in, uh, you know, especially given the geographical uh, vulnerability uh, under which Chinese fleet actually operates. Um, uh, but also second, that in case of a conflict on the land, the Indian naval strategy is now moving towards uh, what we call a strategy of punishment that they will go after Chinese shipping, they will blockade China from using Indian Ocean, uh, you know, and uh, create certain kind of pressure on China in the Indian Ocean. Uh, you know, um, uh, particularly uh, it's to exploit its vulnerability against the sea lanes of communication uh, on which the Chinese economy is so dependent upon. Um, and therefore, these kind of capabilities do provide a lot of space for the Indian Navy uh, to to not only have local control, sea control over the Indian Ocean, but also deny the Chinese from coming in, um, you know, especially through uh, very, ten, very, very, you know, narrow geographical entrances, but also punish Chinese economy through uh, blockading sea lanes of communication during a crisis uh, or a war uh, on the Himalayan frontier. Finally, looking at the broader Indo-Pacific region, the last time India operated two aircraft carriers in the Indian Ocean was uh, in the 1980s. During this time, many uh, Southeast Asian states were very anxious about India's intentions. Even countries like Australia and the US were fearful of India's activities. But we don't see such anxiety today regarding uh, the Indian Navy's expansion. Why is this the case? Uh, So I think fundamentally, uh, the most important point about this is China. Um, when India was developing its naval might, in the, particularly in the 1990s, when for the first time uh, the naval budget consistently hit 15% uh, for almost five to six years, uh, and India became a very uh, significant naval force in the Indian Ocean, uh, that was also the first time India had got 
a nuclear submarine on loan from Russia. Uh, there was a lot of consternation. Uh, and one can revisit that time, you know, everybody writing about India's objectives, what this is for. Uh, you know, um, the Southeast Asians were very unhappy. The Australians were anxious. Uh, even there were a lot of murmurs uh, uh, in the U.S. of uh, what use would India put these forces on. And also that India became extremely interventionist during this time. So the interventions in Sri Lanka, Maldives, Mauritius actually took place when Indian Navy was at, in some sense at its pinnacle during the Cold War. Uh, you know, so India's, uh, so there is both the capabilities element of it, but also India's intentions and its actions during that period of time that created, um, you know, and there was no visible adversary. Uh, in some sense, uh, you know, so uh, like China today, uh, there was also an overhang of Soviet influence on India because much of India's, uh, you know, defense needs were uh, procured from the Soviet Union. So all these factors at that point in time uh, created anxieties about the Indian Navy. The situation today is extremely, it's completely opposite. Uh, so uh, you would see a lot of consternation regarding Chinese capabilities. But when you look at the strategic analysis, uh, you would see that actually, uh, you know, states are either completely you know, uh, ob oblivious in some sense, uh, you know, or to uh, what is happening with the expansion of the Ch Indian Navy or actually welcoming it, uh, you know. Uh, and that is particularly because uh, there is a bigger threat, uh, you know, a much more assertive threat, a much more aggressive threat uh, compared to India. So there is a clear comparison today compared to uh, the situation in the 1980s when there was no visible threat to the Indian Navy. So there is a justification uh, for the Indian Navy to expand, but also, you know, but also an argument for the others to welcome it. Uh, the second thing one needs to understand in India's naval expansion and the history of it is that how the Navy fit, uh, Indian Navy fit into the larger uh, military strategy of great powers. Uh, was an important element in uh, in the expansion of the Indian Navy. So, for example, uh, you know, during the Cold War, the uh, Indian Army and the Indian Air Force fit uh, the fight against communism much more uh, than the Indian Navy did. And moreover, the British and the Americans ruled the waves. So, the British and American support for the Indian Navy uh, was very, very weak. Both Britain and the U.S., and particularly the U.S., uh, you know, declined to support the expansion of the Indian Navy. And therefore, you could see in 1960s that the Indian Navy actually went to Russians, uh, to Russia to acquire submarines and other crafts, which the West was not willing to give. Now, that situation has completely changed today. So, in the larger American strategy, Indian Navy fits a lot more uh, than the Indian Army and the Indian Air Force. And therefore, you see when, uh, you know, the Americans keep on talking about uh, India as a net security provider in the Indian Ocean and all of that, that is because the threat is, rather than the Soviet Union, the threat is China, uh, you know, and uh, the maritime domain is the most uh, contested contested domain. And therefore, you need as many capabilities in the maritime domain. And frankly, everyone needs a balancer, you know, and in China's case, you might need a number of balancers, 
so in some sense, even the Japanese expansion, Japanese, you know, in Japanese forces are also expanding. Um, you know, the Australians are also expanding the Navy. So clearly there is an element of, uh, of, of multinational balancing against China. And that you could see with the way the Quad has also kind of, you know, institutionalized since 2017. Uh, so I think, you know, Indian Navy fits that bill that there is a clear threat today which provides justification and which is therefore is welcomed by others. It also fits the grand strategy of the U.S., the most important actor in this region. Um, and lastly, that, you know, in some sense, um, it, it also fits the need for greater balancing against China. So all those reasons kind of account for, uh, you know, the benign uh, benign outlook of uh, both the regional and the extra-regional powers towards the expansion of the Indian Navy. Thanks, Yogesh, for being on the podcast. You were listening to South Asia Chat. To learn more about our work, visit us at isas.nus.edu.sg. You can also get in touch with us on social media. We're on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram.